Welcome back. This is Simon Fitzgerald, the knife at the gunfight. Uh, guest hosting on Shy Wanana Radio for Zane Elamine on WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Uh, you're about to hear an interview with uh, some authors of a study on the Lebanese port explosion of 2020, which is the largest urban explosion uh, since the atomic bomb in Nagasaki uh, that happened in the midst of a COVID crisis. And we'll also talk about the state of healthcare in Lebanon since the explosion. So without further ado, I'll let the speakers uh, introduce themselves uh, and enjoy. Welcome back to uh, Shy One on our radio. I'm uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. Uh, we're on WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. Uh, thanks to Zane Elamin uh, for giving the opportunity to guest host today. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a trauma surgeon in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm very excited to have on with me uh, a very uh, accomplished trauma surgeon in his own right, Dr. Uh, Haytham Kafarani, uh, from by way of at least the Mass- Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Kafarani, how's my pronunciation? It's perfect. You would go for a Lebanese. <laughs> uh, so th- thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, I also have uh, with me uh, two of his collaborators on a recent study, uh, correct me if I misstate anything, uh, related to the a uh, massive port explosion uh, in Beirut. Um, Dr. Anthony Gabron, are you hearing with us? Yeah, I'm here. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you for joining us. And uh, remind me, Dr. Gabron, where, where are you uh, training or planning to train in surgery these days? So currently I'm doing a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Mass General, but I'll be doing uh, my residency in the next few months starting at the University of Pittsburgh. Excellent, and congratulations. Thank um, you. And we're also hoping to loop in uh, Dr. Alyssa Abu-Khalil as well, who is a collaborator. While we work on that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. First of all, thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us. Uh, And Haytham, I I wanted to start with you. First of all, thank you uh, for joining us. I've uh, collaborated on you several times in, you know, the field of trauma surgery. um, But one of, or I guess several of the most prominent times I've seen you recently that have really resonated with me. Uh, had to do with your work around the uh, port explosion uh, in Lebanon. Do you mind just describing for us uh, what you know what happened in in Beirut um, that and what was the the morbidity of that? What was the effect on the surrounding communities? Yeah, no, thank you, uh, Simon, again for having us. Uh, it's uh, it's a topic that is very dear uh, to our hearts. Um, so as, as you said, I'm, I'm a trauma surgeon at Mass General, so I wasn't personally involved in the Beirut blast, but uh, you know, I, I can give a quick blurb about it, but my involvement was when it happened, I felt completely hopeless and what can I contribute to them? So I, uh, I used my networks within Lebanon and the multiple hospitals and my research infrastructure to help pull a collaboration between the main medical centers there to collect the data on the victims as a tribute to the victims that fell that day. Um, But on August 4th, just for our audience, on August 4th, 2020, the Beirut Beirut port witnessed one of the largest uh, urban explosions of all time. Uh, It is actually rated as the the second largest uh, explosion or the, the largest explosion since Hiroshima and Nagasaki that is not military. This is the extent of it. 
and and Beirut is a is a big city. It's the capital of Lebanon. Has probably two or three million inhabitants, and this is pretty much at the center of it, facing the sea. And the uh, the I mean, there's a lot of loss of lives. There's uh, uh, really hundreds, if not thousands, of people who died. There's hundreds of thousands who lost their houses instantaneously. Um, there was uh, wounded beyond your imagination. But the more important, which I think we'll go into details, is it happened at a very bad time in Lebanon's history because Lebanon at that point in time was suffering from the worst economic crisis uh, witnessed in recent history um, and was the the in the middle of the pandemic of COVID-19. So there were almost like a lot of punches that the country was receiving, and that was a final blow that has since resulted in pretty much the collapse of the country. So I'll stop there. I don't know if, if Anthony wants to add or you want to add anything to it. To it. Um, yeah, if, and, and I can briefly comment about my experience uh, uh, on that night. So on that day, I was still in Lebanon. It was like shortly, it was two months after I had graduated from the American University of Beirut Medical School. And at the time, on that night, August uh, 4th, 2020, at 6.08 p.m. exact, to be exact, I was at home. Um, and then we started, you know, I felt the closet was shaking. Oh, like it almost fell off the wall. And um, we didn't know at first. We didn't know what to do. You know, Lebanon has been hit lately by many uh, earthquakes, but it was never that strong. So we were, um, in the moment, we didn't know if we needed to leave the building or so. And then a few seconds later, we heard the explosion. Um, so, and then a few minutes later or so, I started getting messages from the American University of Beirut asking for help, uh, asking everyone really to come to the hospital and try to contribute. And obviously, I went there. It was hard to get there. All the roads, most of the roads were blocked. Um, there was plenty of people on the roads, etc. But eventually, when I made it, I was really surprised to see how the damages that the hospital had sustained. But also, I was surprised to see the chaos there. I had never seen anything like that at the American University of Beirut. And uh, at the beginning, we had to deal with a lot of lacerations. But as we progressed through the night, we started getting more and more complicated cases uh, that needed more uh, complex treatment and more uh, longer operations, I would say. So that's that's in brief my uh, my take on that night. And I definitely want to hear more about your experience, Anthony. But and, you know, if I quote any figures, most of it is because of, of uh, you know, your guys work and, and work with people, uh, people you collaborated with. But as I recall, I think you published that uh, more than 200 people kind of died right away. And uh, mm -hmm. I think over 6,000 had uh, significant serious injuries. This was the third largest urban explosion basically ever recorded after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, so that was definitely uh, a, a huge devastating blow. And, and as you mentioned, Dr. Kafrani, in the context of sort of an ongoing series of crises um, but Anthony, before you tell us a little bit more about your experience, you know, the, the day and the days following, mm -hmm. um, where where was uh, the hospital that you were working at? Uh, what is its capacity on a typical day? Right. So the American University of Beirut, or in a big perspective, uh, Beirut has around seven major hospitals. Uh, three of them were very close to the uh, center or to the epicenter of the blast, and they were 
almost out of uh, function on that night. But uh, AUB or the American University of Beirut, where again, where I trained originally, uh, is kind of uh, fortunately enough was a bit farther from the hospital, uh, from the from the blast, but also not very far. I, I kind of live at nine, uh, something like six, seven miles away from the epicenter of the blast. Uh, the hospital, I would say, is about one, two miles away from the epicenter of the blast. So I kind of had to commute from my place to uh, to the hospital. Uh, it's like a 20 minutes uh, ride by car on a typical day. But again, that day was much harder to get there because of all the, um, you know, the streets were mostly blocked. And I know from many other presenters on uh, this topic that many of the hospitals themselves suffered significant damage. Where you work, did you witness that as well? Or did you get a large influx of patients from hospitals and facilities that could no longer uh, treat patients? Right. So uh, the American University of Beirut, again, was fortunate uh, in a sense that it wasn't, uh, it didn't sustain too many damages as the other hospitals. It was still functional. Uh, the emergency department was still functioning and so on. But uh, as you mentioned, that's correct. Like the three hospitals that were very close uh, to the center or to the epicenter of the blast were almost completely out of function and they had to evacuate their own patients. Uh, so they sent some of them to me, to the American University of Beirut, uh, to the Lebanese American University Medical Center, etc. Yeah, so so basically in addition to the patients, so I mean, like the AUB, AUB had to deal with uh, an influx of injured patients, but they also had to deal with transferred patients from other hospitals. Yeah. And uh, do you want to describe uh, in any more detail your experience or your findings uh, when you've looked at sort of the, the, the totality of, the, of this incident? So, uh, so in the study, again, we had four out of the seven major hospitals in Beirut. Uh, they collaborated with us. Um, and by us, I mean the Mass General uh, Harvard Medical School. So what we found is that there was approximately 1,800 patients uh, were treated at one of those four centers on the night of the, of the blast and the days that followed. Uh, 30 were dead on arrival or in the emergency department, and 315 were admitted. So in our study, we wanted really to focus on the patients that were admitted to, the, to one of the hospitals uh, because really we can get more data on those patients, more granular and more significant data and make more significant conclusions as opposed to, again, when we talk about this uh, 1,800, approximately again, 2,000 patients that uh, many of them were just came in, had lacerations treated in the emergency department and were discharged on the spot. So again, those 315 patients that were admitted, if we take a, a deeper dive into them, we found that the, the, the range of ages really spans from one week to 93 years, uh, which is pretty striking. We also uh, found that most of the patients arrived by civilian cars. Only 20% of patients arrived to the hospital by ambulance, which is a pretty low number, but also talks about the infrastructure, unfortunately, in Lebanon that was not able to sustain uh, such a massive influx of patients on the night of the, uh, the blast. We also talk about something that is very, very interesting and has been described in the past, quite frankly, but it's, it's important also to reiterate that. We talk about the waves of the injuries, um, the wave of injured patients, I want to say. Uh, so the first wave of injured patients is really the walking wounded, the so-called walking wounded. And those patients are around the hospital often. They have mild injuries and they 
quickly come to the hospital and sometimes they overwhelm the emergency departments. And that's what happened uh, during the Beirut blast. And um, two hours after the blast, that's when really you start seeing more severe, more like severely injured patients presenting to the hospitals. So this is important from a planning perspective that really patients who will present uh, quickly to the hospital are not the most severely injured patients. And you should uh, deal with those patients in an expedited fashion and, uh, you know, treat them closely to their wounds and then send them home to be able to have the capacity and the manpower to deal with the injuries, the more severe injuries that are going to present uh, in the next few hours. And again, this is something that we were able to show in the Beirut Blast uh, study. Uh, we also showed that there were 475 procedures done in 239 patients, mostly orthopedic and plastic procedures. Uh, overall, just also a few more numbers, uh, 3.5, uh, the on-hospital mortality was 3.5%, and the in-hospital uh, complication rate was 18%. And the last number, that just to be brief, I want to quote one last number here, 16% of patients had at least one long-term disability, which is a pretty unfortunate number uh, because it talks about really the uh, societal impact, the large societal impact and long-term impact really of this explosion, uh, mostly being uh, those those long-term disabilities were mostly uh, vision or blindness or uh, partial complete loss of function in one of the extremities. Well, you know, one thing I appreciate about this study, I'm sure, you know, nobody who woke up that morning in Beirut anticipated this of all of the like rolling crises that have been going on there. And and one of the interesting things actually I, I found is that in people who experienced this, some of a certain generation had already um, blast proof the windows in their home so that they didn't actually have any glass fragments. So even though it comes in the context of a history of bombings and violence in the region uh, in the last generation or two, nobody expected this that morning, you know. Uh, very few people, I think, were aware of the risk that existed there, although there were people who had the opportunity and missed it to prevent this. Um, but the point that I want to make is that I think we never know what kind of crisis can await um, in any day. Uh, so I think the preparedness that can be learned from this is really applicable everywhere. I mean, I think Dr. Kafrani can speak to this, but any trauma surgeon in the United States deals with mass casualties, and, and many of those are mass shootings, of course in any given year of their career, most likely. Yeah, I, th I think this is a very important uh, point, Simon. I mean, uh, as you probably have heard the, the quote saying that in mass casualty events, the only failure is the failure of imagination of what could be the next disaster we have to deal with. Uh, Lebanon is not not a, a newbie, if you want, in casualty mass casualty events, and you know, fortunately, the history of the Middle East is like that. So it's it's a very resilient country and able to deal with a lot of situations. But nobody, as you said, nobody imagined uh, a blast of that magnitude affecting so many people, and literally in a split second, everybody. It's not like it evolved over a day or so. It was in a split second uh, a blast. And there's a lot of lessons that could be shared with the rest of the world. And, and whenever you want, we can go into some of them that emanated from, uh, from our discussions, our qualitative part of the study, if you want, where we had multiple discussions with a lot of people who firsthand took care of people that day or managed the crisis. 
Yes, please. I think those lessons are, are really uh, the gems that we can take from this experience. Yeah, I mean, the, the first one you already alluded to, uh, there was a lot of glass-related injuries, and they tended to be of lower injury severity. So, um, but the, the, you know, none of them, you know, well, not, I wouldn't say what, none of them, but the majority of them did eventually okay. Their, their injuries were lacerations, soft tissue lacerations, and actually a good portion of them were managed in the emergency room and then discharged from the emergency room without needing to be admitted. But the, the uh, you know, laminating the glass could have prevented those injuries and it could have affected the care of the more severely injured because one thing it that... Resource availability. Yeah, exactly. Our, our study showed one thing very clearly and we have a nice graph in the study if people are interested in looking at it is what happened is the four remaining functioning hospitals, they were completely overwhelmed in the first three hours by the patients, the, the, the in, inflow of patients with low severity injuries walking into the ED. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the injured. Like, here you go, a glass fell on you. You have a huge laceration gushing blood. What's, what do you do and what does your family do? They take you and they, you, they walk you or they drive you to the nearest hospital. But that, those number of patients just pretty much overwhelmed the ED capacity in all the hospitals. Now, again, the, these hospitals are very resilient. They were able to deal with it. They were heroic, but it could have affected the care of the more injured that they needed attention um, and, and the triage needed to happen. That's lesson number one is laminated glass in areas at risk could have prevented. But from a hospital disaster preparedness, there was no question that the role of the trauma surgeons in those hospitals was absolutely crucial. They were the triaging. They were looking, you know, they, they were able, they have the expertise, they have the experience to recognize that the patient that's producing the most noise might not be the patient that needs your attention first. And they had a very good system and using a lot of the judgment of who goes to the OR, who goes to the ICU, who goes to the floor, and who gets discharged with a quick use of a staples to, to close a laceration. So the role of triaging was very important. The third one was in areas that might suffer similar things, hospitals need to think really hard about where to place their vital functions. What does the hospital need at baseline to deal with a mass casualty event? It needs a functioning operating room, a functioning radiological suite, and a functioning laboratory that can process labs and blood bank. So those four, I mean, they're not the most important, but in a mass casualty event, these could be the four most important vital functions of the hospital. And placing them in a, in a protected area like the basement or underground could keep them functioning. That's what happened with three of the other hospitals. Their vital functions were out. And if these vital functions are out, there's nothing else that they can do safely. And then the other one was the electronic medical records. And it was a very common theme that came out from a lot of the hospitals. Their electronic medical records failed to step up to deal with the mass casualty event. The process of entering patients through the regular medical record, and AUB, for example, has EPIC, and EPIC is the most widely used electronic medical record um, system in the entire United States. And 
perhaps creation of like a disaster mode of some sort in Epic that hospitals can revert to that allows to bypass the very important um, functions of ensuring patient and identity and how to register, but something that allows a faster, more effective way of entering patients into the system. So an x-ray could be, you know, linked to that patient, uh, a lab test could be linked, an OR could be linked to that patient. Uh, that's another area that electronic me- medical record systems were not ready for a mass casualty event of that nature and that size. And there was also, um, people mentioned, all these hospitals, they have mass casualty disaster preparedness plans and they have drills. But what everybody said is, they these drills mean as good as they were they were not as realistic as they could have been and they feel they have room for improvement these are some of the lessons that came out of the study that hopefully the rest of the world can can learn from and you know perform as good or even better than the Beirut hospitals did on that famous day Wow, that, there's a lot there that uh, at some point in the near future I want to talk with you more about um, but for our audience, well, one thing that uh, it reminded me of is, you know, when this blast happened, we in uh, New York had just kind of begin to tread water again after the tsunami of patients related to the first COVID wave in March, April, May, June of uh, 2020. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, this blast obviously happened in that same context. What, what, you know, where does the experience of this explosion fit with, uh, if either you feel like you're able to speak on it, Beirut and Lebanon's experience of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let Anthony, since he was there actually firsthand, but I mean, that was in the middle of a peak in, in Lebanon pandemic. It actually peaked even further right after the blast. And at that moment in time, with all the casualties, I think AB itself, its emergency room, saw 500 patients in the first few hours. Uh, people tried their best to keep, you know, the, the providers to keep or the clinicians tried to keep their masks and, you know, their precautions on. But obviously, it just was not practical with everything they're dealing with. So there was definitely uh, a risk that all of them took. And, and there's no question in my mind that there was a lot of COVID that was unfortunately um, translated to patients and to physicians at that point um, in time. But I can tell you, when you hear the rest of the stories, the individual stories of heroism, you know, the, the surgical resident who um, wasn't, you know, he fell in the blast, he was working until he passed away in the emergency room. And he turned out himself, as he was taking care of people, he was injured from the blast and he had drip fractures that, you know, and he was just biting the bullet and keep going. And he didn't take care of himself until he passed away in the emergency room. They had to take care of him. So when you when you, when you you hear of these stories, you know, the, you think, well, like, are they, were they really trying their best with the COVID? I think they were trying their best, but their best was just could not keep up with the, uh, with the occasion. Right. If I, if I may also comment on this. So um, Dr. Kafrani is perfectly right. I mean, on that night, again, with faced with the severity of, you know, this or the, the, the urgency of the situation, uh, we still tried to protect ourselves, but it was not our, you know, high on our priority list, unfortunately. 
Um, and also we quickly, you know, there was quickly a shortage of PPE. Um, and uh, so even in the weeks after and the, the days and weeks after when I volunteered and worked at multiple with multiple NGOs, we had to rely heavily on uh, international help. I remember vividly there were uh, French soldiers, soldiers actually, who used to visit our tent every day and they would bring to, with them PPE and so on, uh, masks, etc. because we didn't have any at the time. Um, so even before the explosion, we were almost running short of this because of all the surrounding, you know, um, financial and economic uh, situation or the crisis that was going going on in the country. And I can only imagine if you lost about half of the hospital capacity that day, estimating. Um, and there was a huge event that brought everyone together with a shortage of PPE. What the weeks following were like in terms of uh, patient volume at the hospitals. I, I could tell you, uh, so uh, a few weeks uh, after the blast, a couple of weeks, I uh, I personally went to Beirut and uh, it was more of a symbolic gesture, probably helped me, but then they helped them because they did not need me. But I, I staffed the ICU for a week at the American University of Beirut. And I, I can tell you the, the morale was down. Um, there was shortage of PPE, but th- there was... There was enough to go around, but you needed to be really um, careful how to use, how to when to get rid of it, and try to keep to make use of one PPE that you can for the rest of the day. But at that point in time, uh, a lot of the support from all over the world, including in the U- from the U.S., was coming towards Lebanon and towards AUB, and they were getting part of the donations that were received that they were receiving had to do with. Uh, and 95s that were in shortage, in addition to like surgical sutures and surgical staples and equipment like that, that they, they were going through quickly. Uh, but I, I think I did not feel that the the PPE was in such shortage that you couldn't protect yourself, but you felt the shortage in your daily uh, practice in the ICU. And But more importantly, I felt the morale was really down uh, among most people. Uh, and that was about three to four weeks later. Yeah, and, and I'm curious about that because, um, you know, one of my questions is in the context of the current, uh, uh, you know, health situation right now. Are, you know, the health workers able to take care of themselves and their patients and their families right now? Uh, and what's the situation like, you know, a couple of years out? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, both Anthony and I can tell you because we both have families back there. I think... Like I told you, it was almost like a a match of boxing, and and Lebanon was receiving a lot of punches between the COVID, the political unrest, and then and then the economic unrest, which was really really quickly uh, evolving, and the blast came as kind of really a, a mortal punch, if you want. The country has continued to deteriorate, uh, specifically economically, since, and the situation is. Um, is almost untenable in the country uh, from a healthcare provider, which is what your question was. There is a significant exodus happening in the country. Lebanon has always boasted to have one of the highest levels of healthcare that they can provide. The physicians, the surgeons in Lebanon tend to be some of the best in the world. They decide to go work in Lebanon. Many are trained in the premier institutions in the U.S., 
And I can tell you, for example, the Department of Surgery itself has lost nearly a third of its surgeons in the last year alone. Uh, and they've traveled to back to the U.S., to Europe, to the Arabic Gulf area, uh, and just uh, kind of seeking better life, if you want. So the situation has continued to deteriorate, but mostly because of the economic breakdown uh, that happened, continued to happen and, and accelerate after the blast. Anthony, any, um, any, I mean, I, I, to, to give people an idea before I, I let Anthony answer is the Lebanese lira or the Lebanese pound two years ago, one US dollar was 1500 Lebanese pound and Lebanon was a middle, like I wouldn't say high income, but definitely middle income to higher income country. Now, one US dollar from 1500 Lebanese pounds is nearly 26,000 Lebanese pounds. So somebody's salary that used to be $5,000, their salary is now like $150 per month. So the situation is pretty dire, and, um, and I think it's affecting all sectors, including healthcare and the capacity of the country. Anthony? Right. So, I mean, just to take a step back here and, you know, put things into perspective for the viewers who are not familiar with the history of Lebanon. I mean, I think, how did we get here? Actually, I think Lebanon emerged in the 1990s from a 15-year civil war that had really damaged the infrastructure and uh, weakened the government uh, very severely, very severely so. And so over the last also decade, we had a massive influx of Syrian refugees. And then over the last three years, the country has plunged, as Dr. Gafrani is mentioning, it has plunged into an unprecedented economic crisis and the currency has lost more than 90%. Uh, of its value since 2019. Um, and on top of that, you know, the healthcare, as you mentioned, uh, was struggling with the COVID pandemic. So in many, many aspects, we were not prepared on August 4th to deal with a, with a catastrophe of this scale. I mean, no one hopefully will have to deal with such a thing and no one might be, be ever prepared. But I think, again, in this, putting it into context, it's just... Um, shows how much this was a tragedy, really a tragedy to the country. And, uh, you know, the next question might be a, a little bit uh, difficult or I don't know if you give you opportunity to be a little creative, but uh, and we can start, I guess, with uh, Anthony, if you want. Uh, are you able to, you know, obviously you, you, know, you grew up in um, Lebanon, uh, now working in the U.S. Can you put down into words somehow how you feel your relationship uh, with uh, with Lebanon and, and where where are you from in Lebanon? Right, this is a great great question. Thank you. So, I mean, I think um, I'm very attached to Lebanon personally. I grew up, uh, I was born and raised actually in Lebanon. My my parents, both of them, are Lebanese. Um, I have again very deep bonds with Lebanon. I'm from the south originally, from a, a small town called uh, Jezin, which is a beautiful uh, place. And again, I'm very, very proud of being Lebanese. I grew up there. Uh, the Lebanese people are very welcoming. Uh, they, um, it's famous around the world that you know they're very welcoming whenever you come visit. The food is amazing. The culture is really a rich culture, very rich history as well that I, again, take pride in. And I'm mostly proud also, really, when I came here to the U.S., I saw how much Lebanese people were successful uh, in the U.S., but across the world as well, as physicians and in other specialties. So that makes me uh, personally very proud uh, of being Lebanese. Dr. Kafrani, do you have anything to add? I, I think I saw <laughs> in one of your bios that you're from, uh, actually, one, don't let me mispronounce it. Can you tell us where you're from and, and, and 
Anything else yeah. you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I'm still trying to figure that one out, uh, Simon, because my mom is from the south as well, from a, a city called Tyre or Sur. And my dad is from a, a town in Albika called Shmistar. And I've lived all my life in another city called Saida and another city called Beirut. So I'm like from all over. And the whole country is the size of Rhode Island. So it's like, it's not really worth splitting. But I, I actually feel also I have a huge love uh, that is hard to describe. I've been in the U.S. since 2003, so nearly 20 years now. And my joke to people when, when they ask me the classic question, how do you feel American if you're Lebanese? Is I say, I am doomed forever. Because in, in the U.S., I feel extremely Lebanese. And my identity as Lebanese is always at the surface. I, I'm never hiding it. But when I go to Lebanon, they tell me I'm too American there. So I'm, uh, you know, hopefully my kids will have a better time. But the point is, uh, I have a, a huge emotional attachment to Lebanon. I grew up there until I was 25 years old. Uh, I, I appreciate its culture. I appreciate its history. I definitely appreciate its food. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, I, I am, I, I'm sad a lot of times for the troubles that we're going through. I think Lebanon will come out of these troubles eventually and they will emerge to its natural place among all the other nations where it contributes a lot to it. But uh, until then, we're going to try to help it in the way we can and uh, in a way that helps it just pass these difficult days it's passing. So that's it. That's my, my spiel on it. Well, If uh, I may add something, yeah. just sorry to interrupt, just wanted to add something uh, to that point about like you know dr kafari mentioning beirut rising again or you know lebanon rising again it, it has been said that beirut has been destroyed and rebuilt seven times i think it talks about the really the resilience of the lebanese people and how much they've been through struggles over the ages and over over the years and um they've been really pushed forward and always um uh, you know, came victorious, I think. Or So I think Lebanon will rise again, hopefully, knowing the people there. I know they can re- rebuild the country and make things uh, better, hopefully, in the future. Well, I, I really want to thank you guys uh, for the time. But before I let you go, um, I, I apologize. I probably should have warned you. But I always like to ask guests for a recommendation uh, for, you know, a book, music, a uh, piece of art, uh, performance, Something that you would recommend to me and my listeners that we might not uh, uh, share otherwise. Um, and But I'm going to give you a moment each to think about that. Um, and I do want to say, I know uh, Zayn Alamin is the uh, usual host of this show, Shai Wanana on uh, WPFW and WBAI. Uh, and uh, his brother also owns a, uh, a and runs a cafe in, in Beirut. And I don't have the name of it on me right now, but uh, definitely one time I hope we have the opportunity to share a cup of coffee or tea uh, at uh, at his spot in Beirut. Um, but one of my, uh, what I wanted to give is a recommendation, and, and I, I usually don't, but uh, interesting history that one of my close friends from elementary, middle, and high school is a little bit of a rock star, and he's in a band called Beach House uh, from Baltimore that's touring right now. Um, not everyone's favorite uh, music, but I have to say seeing them live you know, they, they choose which spaces to perform in and, and the acoustics and, and the way that they layer chords and melodies is really impressive in their performances. So if you ever have an opportunity to see Beach House, uh, definitely I encourage you. 
if you guys had any uh, recommendations, Anthony, do you have uh, had a chance to thought about it, think about it? Yeah, so I mean, I would recommend a book from uh, my favorite uh, author, with whom I share my last name, actually, Gibran uh, Khalil Gibran, who's uh, originally from again Lebanon. He came to Boston and um, lived here for a while. The Prophet. The book is called The Prophet. I think it was one of my favorites, and it's a very philosophical, very deep book. And I definitely would recommend anyone who has the time and the energy to read it. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I will definitely try Beach House. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look for it. I'll look it up. And I'll always looking for recommendations. Uh, I am, you know, one of my favorite hobbies are hiking and reading. So it's a good question for me. So I have two recommendations, two book recommendations for people. Um, they're both by uh, another um, writer. He's, the books are in French, but they are translated in English. The first one is called Deadly Identity, and sometimes it's translated in the name of identity. It's by an author named Amin Malouf, and um, it's a it's a very good book to read, especially if you're in the U.S. because it talks about what is one's identity uh, made of, and makes the argument that we're all like onions and and built of tens and tens of identities. And what comes to the surface is typically the mirror image of what's threatening us at that point in time. So very interesting book, very relevant to people living in the U.S. in this you know, pot of identities here, uh, melting pot of identities. The second book is, um, is a historical fiction book. It's called Samarkand, which is a city in Uzbekistan nowadays, but the book is just a historical fiction, and I found it fascinating to kind of imagine somebody reading about New York in a thousand years from now, how would they perceive it? And that's why I find that book very interesting. Um, in terms of music uh, piece or entertainment piece, um, one of for the romantics among your listeners, I think one of the most romantic songs I've ever heard that comes from Lebanon is called Bela Welashi, which means without anything. And it's, uh, it's by an, uh, a guy named Ziad Rahbani. And if they can find the translation in English and they want a romantic song to share with their partners, I think they would enjoy it. Well, thanks again so much uh, for joining us uh, on Shaiwanana Radio and uh, WBI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. This has been uh, Dr. uh, Haytham Kafrani and Anthony Gabran talking about their research uh, related to the uh, port explosion in 2020 in Beirut, Lebanon. So thanks again for joining us, guys, and I look forward to, to seeing you again out there. And, and best of luck, Anthony, in your training. I'm sure you'll have a blast in southwestern Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for joining us on Shai Wanana Radio. I'm Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, The Knife at the Gunfight, and you just heard the interview with uh, Dr. Haytham Kafrani of the Massachusetts General Hospital, who actually, since this interview was recorded, has been named as the Chief Patient Safety Officer for the Joint Commission, one of the most important jobs in the country in terms of patient safety in the United States. Uh, We also heard from Dr. Anthony Gabran, uh, who is a graduate of American University of Beirut, Unfortunately, we were never able to get uh, their co-author, Elisa Abu Khalil, uh, on the line, so we'll have to catch up with her uh, in the future. 
Uh, again, this is Simon Fitzgerald uh, in for Zane El Amin on Shai Wanana Radio on WBAI and WPFW. Thanks again for joining us. And the music that was for the intro and outro that you heard uh, was The Hours by, by the band Beach House. Uh, and the outro uh, will be another one of their songs called Beyond Love. Uh, for New York and D.C., if you like that music, Beach House is on tour. They'll be in New York City uh, on the 19th and 20th of July at King's Theater in Brooklyn. Uh, as well as on the 24th of July, they'll be at Anthem uh, Theater in Washington, D.C. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.